Book the Fifth, Part Two of A Laodicean by Thomas Hardy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Book the Fifth, Part Two. Next day they went on to Baden. De Stancy was beginning to cultivate the passion of love even more as an escape from the gloomy relations of his life than as matrimonial strategy. Paula's juxtaposition had the attribute of making him forget everything in his own history. She was a magic alterative, and the most foolish, boyish shape into which he could throw his feelings for her was in this respect to be aimed at as the act of highest wisdom. He supplemented the natural warmth of feeling that she had wrought in him by every artificial means in his power to make the distraction the more complete. He had not known anything like this self-obscuration for a dozen years, and when he conjectured that she might really learn to love him, he felt exalted in his own eyes and purified from the dross of his former life. Such uneasiness of conscience as arose when he suddenly remembered Dare, and the possibility that Somerset was getting ousted unfairly, had its weight in depressing him, but he was inclined to accept his fortune without much question. The journey to Baden, though short, was not without incident on which he could work out this curious hobby of cultivating to superlative power an already positive passion. Handing her in and out of the carriage, accidentally getting brushed by her clothes, of all such as this he made available fuel. Paula, though she might have guessed the general nature of what was going on, seemed unconscious of the refinements he was trying to throw into it, and sometimes, when in stepping into or from a railway carriage, she unavoidably put her hand upon his arm, the obvious insignificance she attached to the action struck him with misgiving. One of the first things they did at Baden was to stroll into the Trinkhalle, where Paula sipped the water. She was about to put down the glass, when de Stancy quickly took it from her hands as though to make use of it himself. "'Oh, if that is what you mean,' she said mischievously, you should have noticed the exact spot. It was there. She put her finger on a particular portion of its edge. You ought not to act like that unless you mean something, Miss Power, he replied gravely. Tell me more plainly. I mean, you should not do things which excite in me the hope that you care something for me, unless you really do. I put my finger on the edge and said it was there meaning it was there my lips touched, let yours do the same. The latter part I wholly deny, she answered with disregard, after which she went away and kept between Charlotte and her aunt for the rest of the afternoon. Since the receipt of the telegram, Paula had been frequently silent. She frequently stayed in alone, and sometimes she became quite gloomy, an altogether unprecedented phase for her. This was the case on the morning after the incident in the Trinkhalle. Not to intrude on her, Charlotte walked about the landings of the sunny white hotel in which they had taken up their quarters, went down into the court, and petted the tortoises that were creeping about there among the flowers and plants. Till at last, on going to her friend, she caught her reading some old letters of Somerset's. Paula made no secret of them, and Mr. Stancy could see that more than half were written on blue paper, with diagrams amid the writing. They were, in fact, simply those sheets of his letters which related to the rebuilding. Nevertheless, Charlotte fancied she had caught Paula in a sentimental mood, and doubtless could Somerset have walked in at this moment instead of Charlotte, it might have fared well with him, 
So insidiously do tender memories reassert themselves in the face of outward mishaps. They took a drive down the Lichtental Road, and then into the forest, to Stancy and Abnopar riding on horseback alongside. The sun streamed yellow behind their backs as they wound up the long inclines, lighting the red trunks and even the blue-black foliage itself. The summer had already made impression upon that mass of uniform colour by tipping every twig with a tiny sprout of virescent yellow, while the minute sounds which issued from the forest revealed that the apparently still place was becoming a perfect reservoir of insect life. Abnopar was quite sentimental that day. In such places as these, he said as he rode alongside Mrs. Goodman, Nature's powers and the multiplication of one type strike me as much as the grandeur of the mass. Mrs. Goodman agreed with him, and Paula said, The foliage forms the roof of an interminable green crypt, the pillars being the trunks, and the vault, the interlacing boughs. It is a fine place in a thunderstorm, said Distancy. I am not an enthusiast, but to see the lightning spring hither and thither like lazy tongs, bristling and striking and vanishing is rather impressive. It must be indeed, said Paula. And in the winter winds these pines sigh like ten thousand spirits in trouble. Indeed they must, said Paula. At the same time I know a little fir plantation about a mile square not far from Markton, said Distancy, which is precisely like these in miniature. Stems, colours, slopes, winds and all. If we were to go there any time with a highly magnifying pair of spectacles, it would look as fine as this, and save a deal of travelling. I know the place, and I agree with you, said Paula. You agree with me on all subjects but one, he presently observed, in a voice not intended to reach the others. Paula looked at him, but was silent. Onward and upward they went, the same pattern and colour of trees repeating themselves endlessly, till in a couple of hours they reached the castle hill which was to be the end of their journey and beheld stretched beneath them the valley of the Merg. They alighted and entered the fortress. What did you mean by that look of kindness you bestowed upon me just now, when I said you agreed with me on all subjects but one? asked Astancy, half humorously, as he held open a little door for her, the others having gone ahead. I meant, I suppose, that I was much obliged to you for not requiring agreement on that one subject, she said, passing on. Not more than that, said Distancy, as he followed her. But whenever I involuntarily express towards you sentiments that there can be no mistaking, you seem truly compassionate. If I seem so, I feel so. If you mean no more than mere compassion, I wish you would show nothing at all, for your mistaken kindness is only preparing more misery for me than I should have, if let alone to suffer without mercy. I implore you to be quiet, Captain Distancy. Leave me and look out of the window at the view here, or at the pictures, or at the armour, or whatever it is we have come to see. Very well. But pray don't extract amusement from my harmless remarks. Such as they are, I mean them. She stopped him by changing the subject, for they had entered an octagonal chamber on the first floor, presumably full of pictures and curiosities. But the shutters were closed and only stray beams of light gleamed in to suggest what was there. "'Can't somebody open the windows?' said Paula. "'The attendant is about to do it,' said her uncle. And as he spoke, the shutters to the east were flung back, and one of the loveliest views of the forest disclosed itself outside. 
Some of them stepped out upon the balcony. The river lay along the bottom of the valley, irradiated with a silver shine. Little rafts of pine wood floated on its surface like tiny splinters, the men who steered them not appearing larger than ants. Paula stood on the balcony, looking for a few minutes upon the side, and then came into the shadowy room where Destancy had remained. While the rest was still outside, she resumed, You must not suppose that I shrink from the subject you so persistently bring before me. I respect deep affection. You know I do. But for me to say that I have any such for you, of the particular sort you only will be satisfied with, would be absurd. I don't feel it, and therefore there can be nothing between us. One would think it would be better to feel kinder towards you than to feel nothing at all. But if you object to that, I'll try to feel nothing. I don't really object to your sympathy, said Destancy, rather struck by her seriousness. But it is very saddening to think you can feel nothing more. It must be so, since I can feel no more, she decisively replied, adding as she stopped her seriousness. You must pray for strength to get over it. One thing I shall never pray for, to see you give yourself to another man. But I suppose I shall witness that some day. You may, she gravely returned. You have no doubt chosen him already, cried the captain bitterly. No, Captain Destancy, she said shortly a faint involuntary blush coming into her face as she guessed his illusion. This, and a few glances round at the pictures and curiosities, completed their survey of the castle. Bastetti knew better than to trouble her further that day with special remarks. During the return journey he rode ahead with Mr. Power, and she saw no more of him. She would have been astonished had she heard the conversation of the two gentlemen as they wound gently downwards through the trees. As far as I am concerned, Captain Destancy's companion was saying, nothing will give me more unfeigned delight than that you should persevere and win her. But you must understand that I have no authority over her, nothing more than the natural influence that arises from my being her father's brother. And for exercising that much, whatever it may be, in my favour, I thank you heartily, said Destancy. But I am coming to the conclusion that it is useless to press her further. She is right. I am not the man for her. I'm too old and too poor, and I must put up as well as I can with her loss. Drown her image in old Falernian, till I embark in Charon's boat for good. Really, if I had the industry, I could write some good Horatian verses on my inauspicious situation. Ah, well, in this way I affect levity over my troubles, but in plain truth, my life will not be the brightest without her. Don't be downhearted. You are too, too gentlemanly to stancy in this matter. You are too soon put off. You should have a touch of the canvasser about you in approaching her, and not stick at things. You have my hearty invitation to travel with us all the way till we cross to England. There will be heaps of opportunities as we wander on. I'll keep a slow pace to give you time. You are very good, my friend. Well, I will try again. I am full of doubt and indecision, mind, but at present I feel that I will try again. There is, I suppose, a slight possibility of something or other turning up in my favour, if it is true that the unexpected always happens, for I foresee no chance whatever. Which way do we go when we leave here tomorrow? To Karlsruhe, she says, if the rest of us have no objection. Karlsruhe, then, let it be, with all my heart, or anywhere. To Karlsruhe they went next day, 
after a night of soft rain which brought up a warm steam from the Schatzwald valleys and caused the young tufts and grasses to swell visibly in a few hours. After the Baden slopes, the flat thoroughfare of Charles's rest seemed somewhat uninteresting, though a busy fair which was proceeding in the streets created a quaint and unexpected liveliness. On reaching the old-fashioned inn in the Langstrasse that they had fixed on, the women of the party betook themselves to their rooms and showed little inclination to see more of the world that day than could be gleaned from the hotel windows. End of Book the Fifth, Part Two